Hi, I'm Samantha Teague, and you're listening to the Gourmet Traveller podcast, Set Menu. You've probably eaten at one of their restaurants, or ordered a round of drinks at one of their bars. Today on the show, a conversation between two hospitality powerhouses, Chris Lucas and Morris Tazzini. I had all my investors pull out. I was left stranded. Also in this episode, we head to Ramblin' Rascal in Sydney for a little bartender's wisdom. So, this is called Sweetberry Wine. Oh my God, that is delicious. Plus, a catch-up with cheesemaker Kristen Allen. These are, I guess, crafts that would have been handed down from family member to family member. It's not that hard. Chris Lucas and Morris Tazzini. Morris Tazzini, restaurateur, trying to become more of an entrepreneur these days, I think. I dabble in all types of things from, you know, restaurants, clubs, bars, um, fashion. Um, I was probably best known for th- three gigs, I would say. Um, Cafe Cucina being my first, 1988. Um, the Melbourne Wine Room in 1996, which was, um, you know, a instrumental instrumental pub that sort of changed the Melbourne pub scene and then um, I think that perhaps my current gig being the Icebergs Dining Room Bar in Bondi is probably my most famous and about to I've just embarked in my first my, on my first international journey so we've opened a few places in Bali Da Maria and Luigi's Hot Bar and Pizza and we're about to open up the Bondi Beach Public Bar which um, will be basically just a classic public bar dedicated to quality I'm Chris Lucas, so uh, I've been involved in a number of fairly popular, iconic type of uh, restaurants, pubs in Melbourne. The the most iconic one, I guess, was the Botanical back in uh, early 2000, where we sort of uh, turned an old, sedate South Yarra pub into a cool, large-scale city brasserie. Uh, we sort of, I guess, redefined a bit uh, how people viewed Australian pubs back in those days. And then that sort of led on to the sort of uh, the iconic chinchin, which led the charge, I guess, and the and the dynamic shift in in eating back now almost six or seven years ago, where I, I guess it sort of was the forerunner of the of the new casual uh, drive to make food probably a little more egalitarian, a bit of fun, uh, make the experience a little more than just what's on the plate which is what Chin Chin, I guess, has done pretty well. You know, a follow-on from Chin Chin, we've opened up a few other places. We've dabbled a bit in, in Italian pizzerias, and we've done a really cool hawker restaurant, which, uh, again, is a fun, large-scale beer hall, come a bit of a nightclub, come a bit of a hawker restaurant. And we're about to embark on our biggest challenge, which is uh, something that we're really looking forward to, entering into the, the rarefied world of top-end dining. So... Last month we opened uh, our beautiful restaurant in Melbourne called Kisume, which is a Japanese restaurant. Three levels, sort of cool place with lots of little uh, tricks up our sleeve, depending on which floor you're on. And uh, next year we're bringing Martin and Vicky Ben from Sydney down to Melbourne to do our version of what we think could hopefully uh, redefine top-end dining for what will be the Melbourne sort of version of sepia. Fantastic. Very exciting. Love it. And right now, this moment, we're just turning the uh, water and gas electricity onto Chin Chin Sydney, which is in the iconic Griffiths Tea Building. All in all, a pretty busy time for us. It's actually quite interesting. <laughs> that Amazing, we the two old wog boys well, from Melbourne did it. It's actually uh, quite Melbourne interesting that we actually have so much in common. Well, I, I, was quite, I, was, I was quite, <laughs> quite taken back by it, to be quite honest. You it know? probably says a lot about how we see the industry. So, yeah. you know, we see it, I think, in many ways, uh, 
you know, we're, we're about the same age and we've, we've been through the industry over the last two or three decades. And while we've worked in the same city, yep. and then we've gone our own separate ways, it's interesting that we're sort of finding ourselves back here in Sydney. Yep. But you're right, like, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I think you and I uh, share the same ethos, which yep. is, look, it's got to be good food, yep. and uh, it's got to be fun, and, you know, it's got to be... Qualities are given. Um, the other day we were talking about how a lot of people have forgotten the social value that restaurants play, mm. you know, and I know for a fact that I was taught my table manners around the kitchen table, but I also know for a fact that I've taught my son, my firstborn, Sylvester, and now he's about to turn 25, his table manners around the restaurant table, you know? And, you know, I, I think that that social value sometimes is forgotten and the importance that it plays. You know, when I think about going out for dinner, I think about restaurants that participate in the development of, of social culture. You know, the restaurants that you and I have been involved with, I think in many ways, not only have they defined a city and its culture, but they've, they've created precincts, you know, they've, they've, they've redefined the city in the way the city is viewed by people who come to visit the city. Absolutely. And by the way, the people live and enjoy the, the city. It's actually pretty remarkable how important restaurants have become to the whole social fabric. And in fact, to be quite honest, I still argue today that you know, politicians and, uh, and legislators talk about uh, you know, wanting to make the cities of Australia more sophisticated and more European. If they actually let restaurants do their job, We'd, we'd solve 90% of the problems, right? I'm enjoying this conversation, to be quite honest. It's really good. <laughs> In fact, leave it up to us. We'll sort out everything from the lawmaking right yeah, through to totally. else, right? Because at the end of the day, what's great European culture all about? I mean, you know, you talk about learning the basic rules of, of engagement around a table. I was in Milan a couple of weeks ago yep. at a beautiful classic old restaurant on a Sunday night. Yep. Uh, and uh, I was watching this table. An elegant mother, father, grandparents and six kids all varying ages from young little kids five or six years of age through to teenagers all impeccably dressed right oh, sitting around this table eating beautiful pasta sh sharing a drink the kids were all having they had a little touch of red wine in their glasses everyone was so elegant the whole experience reminded me of you know, how important restaurants are to a family, yeah. to its culture. And I just watched how well behaved the kids were. The parents didn't have to yeah, didn't have great. to say anything to the kids. The kids sort of knew how to behave in what was a, a pretty fancy restaurant. Yeah, and I just thought it was a beautiful picture of of what we're what we're all about. Yeah, Milan's a pretty fancy city too, isn't it? <laughs> it is a fancy city, but you know, it actually has a lot of similarities to to Melbourne where we come from, right? And uh, you know, and that ethos that we we grew up and to us comes naturally and right? um tell me chris have you um like opened in sydney has there been any concerns for you have you thought about what time you know it was quite interesting for me when i came up and we opened up in 2000 now i think i was very fortunate to perhaps have been part of the golden era of you know the the really like the corporate money you know and i think the melbourne didn't have it i remember quite you know vividly leaving Melbourne and this wasn't that corporate credit card and I remember coming up and opening up Otto was two months before the Olympics and those cards were coming out and you know we were selling 50 bottles of Bollinger on a Friday lunch unheard of in Melbourne you know but um you know but really at the end of the day apart from that over the years what's just happened is you know you know like I just sort of find that really now clients are clients you know yeah it's quite interesting also before we were talking about how um we we're talking about barley 
And then you mentioned about the hawkers in um in 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 winter, no, yes, in yes, winter, yeah. yeah, winter, yes, and how it's part restaurant, part bar, part, part club, club, right? And I really quite like the idea now, and I see that a little bit in Chinchins mm. when I go to Chinchins in Melbourne, that it's like you know starting to become the dolphins a bit like that as well. Mm. Maybe Dorazio is a little bit too, mm. but the fine the blurring between restaurant clubs and bars mm. are becoming. Well, that's because... Really interesting now. I remember walking to Chin Chin one night. I kid you not, on a Friday night. And uh, I, I think almost 80% of the restaurants was all female. Yeah. And why is that? Because safe. they don't want to go to a club because it's not safe. Right? They don't know what's going to be put in their drink. Uh, they can't Absolutely. really dress up because some guys are going to throw some drinks on them or whatever. They come to the restaurants. They get dressed up. For them, it's Very a glamorous true. night. Um, they could be just having a curry and a stir fry, but they're all dressed up for it, right? They're drinking spritzers or they're drinking cool cocktails, they're drinking wine, um, and and the benefit of it is they are actually teaching our young people. We're leading the way to say, "Hey, you can actually have a lot of fun without having to get off your head about I, it." I, right? I quite I quite vividly remember my first um, single diner. She was a female. I think she was the editor of French Vogue, right? In a cafe Gucino, and that was that was sort of like life-changing moment. My father made sure that we all took pride in serving this woman. And he told us this, you know, when you have a restaurant with single diners, you actually have a restaurant. And I've sort of like kept that in my, in the back of my mind forever. Yep. And it's, 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 it's a very important thing. It's well, a, the safety factor that you were just talking about, which is really important, you know. Safety, but cool. Yeah. So you can have just as much fun, in fact, to be honest, I think they have more fun. I think they have a lot more fun because they're actually enjoying the experience. The experience is no longer about how much can I drink, how quickly can I drink it, but it's about a more holistic experience. It's about a better experience. Um, you know, I spent a long time looking at sites. In fact, what attracted me to Chin Chin yeah. here in Sydney was the building. You know, it's such a beautiful building right on the edge of Surrey Hills, you know, close to the city. To me, it was sort of like the flat iron building of Sydney, right? Uh, so I fell in love with it. So I had to do something with it. Um, you know, you've seen a million sites. What, what do you think makes a great site? Oh, you know, just a, a lot of different factors, really. It really, like, you know, initially we... Sometimes I start with a concept that then I have a site in mind and sometimes I see a site that develops a concept. But I think the icebergs was more was more the, um, the site made the concept mm. and it was more, for me that true belief i had all my investors pull out i was left stranded with you know started building broke you know had to sell everything to sort of put all my money back you know to get that project off the ground literally everything and that was like you know i truly believe that you know that was it it was like finding those great sites in italy where you walk and you know you park 10 kilometers away just to get there and the importance for me for the icebergs was really I felt it was the first restaurant that was really really going to give me even though Cucina had been in you know top 10 cafes of the world and, th and, and and other sort of accolades but I really felt that you know the icebergs was the first international restaurant that I could own first real Australian international restaurant mm. that I could actually be, be really proud class. To, to be an Australian restaurant to be yeah. called an Australian restaurant it's a little known fact that there is a bar directly beneath the Gourmet Traveller office, and that bar makes a very good Negroni. In preparation for this month's Italian issue, I popped downstairs to Ramblin' Rascal to talk to co-owner Charlie Lehman about mixing the perfect Negroni. My name's Charlie Lehman, I'm a co-owner of Rambling Rascal Tavern. 
Talk to me about Negronis. Um, Italian, which is I am not. Um, delicious, bitter, good, good before or after dinner. I like them both, both an aperitif and a, and a digestive. But um, yeah, amazing. Campari, gin, and sweet vermouth. It just all depends on uh, how strong you want it and sort of those balances can be played with. Obviously, we like to do the uh, equal parts um, just because it's the straight straight version of it all. But um, playing around with it, it's always good fun. If you want a bit sweeter, more sweet vermouth, more bitter, Campari, or you just like gin, just put heaps more gin in it, essentially. Gin, the gin component. You can yeah. get quite a lot of different gins now. What do you think is the best type of gin to use? I think this is always, like when people ask about what the best of this, this, and this is, it's always very subjective. But I reckon it all comes down to your favourite style of gin. A lot of Australia is doing really good New World gins now, and you can pick up any Australian bottle of gin and put it in a, in a Negroni and it'll taste delicious. Um, my personal favourites, I dig the Archie Rose. Um, Brookie's gin from Byron Bay is uh, brand new. That's pretty tasty. They use um, they have a rainforest on the back of their farm that they get all their stuff from. So that's I think I think using New World gins gives that that extra element of this like instead of the London Dry, it's give it's a different element in it. So any any New World gins are pretty good, pretty fun to work with. That's what I like. Yeah. Um, so we did a twist on a Negroni called Sweetberry Wine. So we're taking our infused unaged Armagnac with uh, lemon myrtle and juniper berries and we'll bang out 30 mils into a mixing glass. And then our Italian Campari. I don't know if there's any other Camparis in the world. And then our Oscar 697 which is the sweet vermouth also from Italy. All equal parts into the mixing glass. Get our delicious ice. So as with most cocktails or pretty much all cocktails uh, dilution is one of the biggest key elements um, in making a good drink. You don't want it too diluted so it waters down too much and you don't want it too under diluted um, so as to have like two of a stiff drink and you don't, you're not really mixing the different spirits together enough. So you just have to get that perfect, usually 10 to 15 seconds I, I suggest. Um, and Pat was telling me the trick to mixing is don't move your wrist. Yeah, don't move the wrist, which is a very hard thing to do. <laughs> it's a very, very hard thing to do. <laughs> also, if you yeah, like, try and back and forth around, it's all, it's all, you know, it all just gets down to dilution. It doesn't really matter. Right. Now we give it a bit of a taste to see how we are. My God, that is delicious. <laughs> Poured over a big old chipped ice block into a double rocks glass. And then cheeky orange wedge, just shove her in there. Cristiano Beretta taught me that. Italians are lazy. They don't ever do peels, they just do big slice of orange. And there we go. Hey. Sweet berry wine. Thank you. No worries. Was it like with the... It's actually quite good. Oh, yeah. It's Can very I try good. It? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> awesome. uh, delicious. Thank you. You're listening to Gourmet Traveler's Set Menu. Kristen Allen is a Sydney cheesemaker who makes small batch cheeses and yogurt. Dave Matthews is a gourmet traveller sub-editor and a former chef. We asked Dave to find us the answer to one critical question. Is it possible to make good cheese at home? Hi, Kristen Allen. Thanks for coming in to Gourmet Traveller. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I firstly want to ask you for the uninitiated, uh, the practice of making your own cheese might sound crazy. Mm. Uh, is it? No, not at all. I think we have to remember that people have been making their own cheese and yogurt 
pickling, even brewing beer for a very, very long time. And I think we've kind of just lost touch. These are, I guess, crafts that would have been handed down from family member to family member. And it's not that hard. Once you have, I guess, that basic knowledge of making, I guess, starting with something as simple as yogurt, then it's pretty easy. Can you tell me about the first cheese that you made? I dove straight in and bought a wine fridge and made a washed rind cheese. So I made it as stinky as possible mm. and matured it, yeah, in this tiny little wine fridge at home. So that's not exactly like cheese making 101. But... Yeah, but I had done a couple of courses. Okay. Yeah, so I did a few basic courses just to, I guess, get the basics of cheese making. Well, I guess I'm interested to know how um, you get from kind of buying your own wine fridge, doing small batch stuff to like Kristen Allen, cheese maker, cheese instructor. Cheese extraordinaire. It grew from there and I started using um, Cornersmith, their cafe at night time and I started making yogurt and cheese for them. And from there, just making cheese over and over again and just teaching myself that new processes and experimenting. And also, I just think it's worth saying as well for people who are wanting to make cheese at home, it is easy. I think the only thing you really need is time and patience. Mm. Um, and I think that's the thing that we all struggle with these days. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> yeah. We so, all say we don't have enough time, yeah. but really we do. Kristen, your step-by-step guide for making your own ricotta at home is featured in the Gourmet Traveller October issue. How difficult is ricotta to make? I think ricotta is the easiest cheese in the world to make, as you will see from the, the masterclass. It's the basics. It's all about heating milk adding an acid and curdling the milk. Mm. So what happens when you curdle milk? What does it look like? It looks, I guess, like if you can picture cottage cheese Mm. or scrambled eggs, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. It gives people a good example of what curds and whey means. Mm. And that's like the ricotta of the curds and then you've got this yellowy clear liquid, which is way. Okay, and that gets drained off, does it? Gets drained off. There are many uses for it as well. Lots of people just chuck it down the drain, but there are many ways with way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you are in the middle of opening a new uh, space kitchen in Alexandria. Yeah. Um, previously had a space in Marrickville, is that right? Yep, I was just renting a bench space out of Cornersmith's Pickery. Okay, so this is the first time you've kind of got your own big kitchen where you can put in cheese vats and make it how you want it to be it's mainly exciting it's a little bit nerve-wracking going from you know making small I guess 10 liter batches of milk um, moving up to a cheese vat which is I guess I think it's around 300 liters which is pretty small scale compared to like most cheese makers I think uh, have thousand liter vats but it's exciting and I've got a maturing room as well. Is that temperature controlled or humidity? Uh, Yep, both. Temperature controlled, so around 12 degrees. And for the cheeses that I want to make, around 90 degrees as well. And lovely wooden boards to mature my cheeses on. What kind of cheeses would be using that 90 degrees? I'm about really stinky cheeses. (laughs) The stinkier, (laughs) the better. So, yeah, I'm going to start out experimenting with washed rind cheeses and then... Look, I've got a whole notebook of 
other cheeses that I want to experiment with. Yeah, but um, yeah, we'll start with the stinky ones. What are the really easy fresh cheeses that I could do in my home kitchen? I guess the easiest cheeses would be like a, a fresh curd, like a goat's curd or a chev. Mm. And the process is as simple as adding some starter cultures or adding maybe like a small amount of yogurt mm. to culture the milk. This is basically acidifying the milk and then adding some rennet which will help form the curd but basically yeah it's just a process of adding cultures and rennet cutting the curds and then just draining the cheese Mm. do you have a favorite cheese pun um i guess my favorite one uh to throw in when you're having a conversation with someone about music I always throw in, yeah, I like cheesy music. Um, I listen to a lot of r and <laughs> <laughs> That's it for us this episode. We'll be back in two weeks. Make sure you're subscribed so you get an alert when the new episode drops. And don't miss our new Italian issue on Stands Now. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.